Good morning, everybody. The Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 5, and it's actually on page 5 of the Bibles that you were given as you came into the church. We're starting at verse 1. So Genesis chapter 5, on page 5, at the bottom of the first column. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. He named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived for a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Although Enoch lived a total of 365 years, Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands 
caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here. A very warm welcome if you're new, visiting, or back after a while. Um, just to point you to the, the QR code that's on the booklet, uh, and there's a hard copy of the Connect card. The QR code links you to an electronic Connect card, and the, there's also a hard copy one in your booklet as well. We'd love to hear from you, regulars and visitors, newcomers alike. You can scribble your details down there. There's a box at the door as you go out where you can pop the hard copy or just submit the electronic one at any point in the service. And uh, a lot of the boxes kind of correlate with things that are happening in the life of our church and, and the details are found in the booklet itself. But you might also have questions uh, which arise from uh, perhaps what we've just read in Scripture or what I've said. Um, and so you can use that if you just like to have an answer through the week or maybe you want us to pray for something, use the card that way as well. Um, uh, but uh, ho hopefully as we, we reflect on Scripture this morning, there's clarity and there's truth. Let me pray that God would grant us both those. Join me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply to our hearts and minds. Give us, Lord, that clarity. Show us the truth. And, and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, if you are visiting or new this morning, we are in uh, a series on the first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, this is one of the more strange books in the Bible. Uh, you've probably heard some of the stories. And then other parts, as we've been working through them, you've thought, I can't believe that's in the Bible. How bizarre. Uh, in some ways, I think that's part of the attraction of the Bible, actually. It is the most unique piece of writing ever created, I believe, in the history of the world, and it explains the world in a very unique uh, perspective. It explains it from the perspective of God and what He's doing and why He's doing it. And so I think uh, this series is fascinating to go through. This morning... We had what they call a genealogy. This is, um, uh, this is a description of, a, it's like a family tree. You would have picked it up. And it has lots of names. Jill did very well. I'm sure she practiced hard to get through some of those. They're not the names you find, you know, in our, in our usual social circles now, most of them. Uh, but it, it also has a purpose. Uh, perhaps if you've read the Bible before, you know that there are these lists of names but they do seem like they're just something you have to go through to get to the real part of the story. But every time a list of names is provided in the Bible, they have a purpose. In fact, today's list is actually a contrast which a with a list that was already found in the previous chapter, chapter 4. Uh, if you were here last week and you read it or you've been reading through the week and you've caught up, you may not have even realised it because chapter 4 is all about Cain and Abel. And that famous first uh, great uh, sin, that great act of evil where Cain kills his brother Abel. 
and then, you know, the, what happens to Cain and his family. But if you go back and read it from verse 17 to the end of that chapter, it is, a, again, another genealogy. It's the life, it's the family tree of Cain's family. And in contrast to that, we get a second family tree here in chapter 5. And this is the family tree of Stet's family. Writers have often loved kind of contrasting two brothers in stories, and there is a contrast here between Cain and his brother Seth. And the question, actually, that we start to see emerge here is, what does it look like to be the chosen people of God in the world in light of everything that happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? What does it look like to be God's people? The reason that that's the question for this passage is because, in a sense, Seth is the new hope. His family is the hope. It's kind of chosen as the the people of God. In fact, we're told in the last verse of the last chapter that now they called on the name of the Lord. There's a sense of hope. Uh, There's a sense of prospect for for this group of people. And as you read through it, actually, the thing that contrasts is the story of Enoch um, in comparison to the story of Lamech, who's perversely evil in Cain's line, Enoch is almost the opposite. He stands out in part in chapter 5 because there's this repeating pattern of someone is born, they, they live for a while, they give birth to, a, to an heir, and then they also, they also have other children, they live for a further period of time, and then they die. This is the pattern of Genesis 5, except for Enoch. And when he breaks that pattern, he's actually highlighting to us um, something unique about him. Now, Graham, I'm sorry, I actually left my clicker down at the pew, so could you click to the next slide for me? Here is verses 22 to 24. After he became father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Now, this little... This little grab in Genesis 5 is unique because everyone else just kind of lives, has sons and daughters, then dies. But Enoch, he doesn't just live, he walks faithfully with God. And then, of course, at the end, he doesn't die. Something else happens to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the story of Enoch is meant to highlight what it's actually look. He's the model. He's what it looks like to be one of God's people in this world that is now post-Genesis 3. And the phrase that sums up his life and the kind of pattern of his life is this phrase, walked faithfully with God. Only one other person has this exact same phrase attributed to them. That's Noah in the next chapter. But the idea of walking with God is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament to actually describe God's people. This is a really important verse and an important section of the Bible because, you know, you've probably had preachers get up and say, you are called to live for God. Maybe you've heard Christians have been called to live a different way in the world that they... And that's a repeating theme in the Bible, but this is the first time, actually, that this idea is developed in Scripture, that God's people are different to the world around, and Enoch is different. He's different because he walks with the Lord. The phrase is used, as I said, throughout the Old Testament. Here's a couple of examples. Amos 3.3, if you're a note-taker. If you look at Amos 3.3, what you see is that walking with the Lord is another way of describing intimacy and partnership. Amos says you can only agree with each other. You can only walk with each other if you agree with each other. 
There's a deep partnership. There's a deep intimacy between the two. In uh, Genesis 20, 48, 15, Abraham and Isaac are described as men who walked with God and therefore were protected by God, were looked after by God. So to walk with God is to be someone who's protected by God, who's cared for by God. And then in 2 Chronicles 27, uh, the, the writer is just towards the end of the Old Testament. He's talking about one of the good kings of Israel, Jotham, and he says that Jotham walked with the Lord. And so his kingdom grew. But implicit in the story of Chronicles is that to walk with God is to be obedient to God, to trust him wholeheartedly. And the product is that his, his work as a king flourishes. So to walk with God in the Old Testament is to have this deep intimacy, this deep close partnership with God, to agree with God, to trust God, to obey God, and to be protected by God, to have a sense of God's care and oversight of you. Now, you put those together and you look at Enoch and you see he did all of that, and what's more, he did it for 300 years. Some, of, some people in this building have been Christians for 50 or 60 years and, and we think that's, a, that's an extraordinary effort. Enoch did it for 300 years. He obeyed God, he trusted God, he was in partnership with God, he was protected by God for 300 years. Here's the pattern of what it looks like to be one of God's people in the world. Matthew Henry, the Puritan uh, writer, says this, to walk with God is always to set God before us, to act as always under his eye, followers of him as dear children. I love the little image that he's creating there. Have you ever seen a parent or a child walking together down the street? Uh, I mean, I walk my, one of my kids to school in the morning often, and the dynamic is very different to, um, to middle-aged people walking down the street, isn't it? Uh, a parent and a child, they're hand in hand, and, and if most children are like my child, they're talking the whole time. They're debriefing, they're dreaming, they're trying to imagine, you know. It can't just be a walk to school, it has to be some kind of great imaginary story all the way to school. It's a sharing, it's, it's even a sharing of the things they're afraid of. And then you get to the cross section and, and there they are, they hold on tight to your hand as you walk across them. You grab them, you pull them back if they're about to step out in front of traffic. You are, you're looking after them. It's a beautiful image that Henry ascribes to this image of walking with God. And he says, to be one of God's people is to be like a child walking with their parent, to implicitly trust them, to obey them, to rejoice in their presence, to have that intimacy, to have that protection from God. Enoch walked with God for 300 years. You know, at first you think 300 years, goodness me, of obedience, but then when you picture it this way, you think 300 years of God's protection, God's care, intimacy with God. And so the question actually for us is, at this point, if you are a Christian, if you follow God, do you walk with God? Do you walk with God like Enoch walked with God? Now, it can't just be living Walking with God is not just getting through life. It's not having a title even. It's, it's all those other things as well. It's the intimacy. It's the obedience. It's the trust. It's the reliance. Do you have that kind of 
Do you have something deeper with God? Do you consider God like your Father, whose hand you're in, whose protection you rely on, whose presence you rejoice in? That is what it's like to walk with God. And so we have this first pattern of walking with God, and so we have probably one of the first challenges to what it looks like to be God's people is to enjoy and to live in light of that intimacy and His, His, His provision and His presence. Now, what makes Enoch stand out, though, in this story is the very thing I said, that there is just this constant drumbeat in the background of his story in Genesis 5. It's this pattern of people being born, of people giving birth and raising children, and then dying themselves, living for a period of years. In fact, the years are extraordinary in length in this part. Uh, There isn't an easy explanation as to why, although I think, like I said, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are unique in the Bible, and they're describing a unique time in the world. Um, Actually, after the flood, which we'll cover in in the coming weeks, after the flood with Noah and his family, what we see actually is the ages of people start to shrink. There's a sense in which this period before the flood is very unique in, in the history of the world. And so the ages kind of correspond with the uniqueness of it, although the explanation for why they're that long is not given to us. But nonetheless, what we do see is that there is the kind of the fulfillment of God's command to Adam and Eve to, you know, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, that's picked up in the first couple of verses of this chapter again. There is a sense in which what God said to Adam and Eve in verses, in chapter 1 and 2, continues even now in Genesis 5. People are doing the thing that He asked them to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply. The, the, the earth is being filled with God's people, the, the pinnacle of His creation. And yet, there is this repeating phrase, isn't it? The phrase, and he died, at each of, after each of the people, after each of the segments. In the Hebrew, it's just one word, actually. It's like a full, it's literally the last word in the segment. It's like the ultimate full stop on this person. And it's this drumbeat that when you read it through, is jarringly repetitive to us. You know, if you've been reading Genesis from 1 through to 5, progressively death has been introduced into the story. In Genesis 3, it's promised as a result of Adam and Eve's mistake. In Genesis 4, it's seen in this horrific moment where Abel is killed by his own brother. But even there, it seems like it's something kind of at a distance. It's like the worst-case scenario. But in Genesis 5, death is no longer the worst-case scenario. It's just the reality of every generation now. It doesn't require an act of great evil like, Ab- uh, like Cain towards Abel. It's just part of life. People die. People die. And, and the writer of Genesis is saying, this is the reality of the world we now live in. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. Death is common to every single member of the family, bar, of course, Enoch. And, and as we think about that, we, we're struck, first of all, with the fact that death cuts off life. Yes, each person raises up, you know, an heir and then further sons and daughters, right? Each person has the capacity to do what God has asked them to do, to be fruitful and multiply, and yet they still die. Though they have the capacity to bring forth life, they are still, they are now always going to die. 
death cuts off life. You know, a family sitting at the table for a meal, the reality, the sober reality is one person at that meal will be at the funeral of every other member. That's just, that's the way we, that's, that's it. That's life. That's our experience of life. Death is real. But what's more is, it's interesting because in verses 1, 2, and 3, there's, there's a reminder that Adam is made in the image of God, but then Seth is made in his image. So there's a sense in which Seth is also, in some imperfect way, also made in the image of God. And yet, the image of God finds its way into a pile of dirt after every single family. Everyone ultimately dies. The image of God itself is ultimately put in the ground. And so there's a sense in which death strips life of its dignity, its fundamental dignity. Yes, we're all made in the image of God, but now we all will lose that. We all will lose that, it says. This is, this is, this is sobering. This is sobering for us. And yet, as I talk about it, I think we don't like to face up to death. We don't like to face up to it. We don't know how to face up to it. It's probably a better way to describe it. You know, in our, in our culture, more and more, the way we deal with this truth is to blind ourselves, distract ourselves to it, numb ourselves to it almost. So a, a large group of people deal with death by just becoming busier, filling their life with more stuff and even more people. We, we have such a timeline that is so packed in, we don't have to think about these kind of things. There was, you know, in Rome, ancient Rome, when life was really bad, you know what the emperors would do? They would give out free bread and run circuses. It was a way of distracting the masses from the reality of the world that they were living in, their life. We just dole out for ourselves stuff and leisure and people. So we don't have to pause and reflect on the real nature of living in this world. I was at um, Scripture this, uh, this week on Wednesday, and it's great. There's, it's great to see families coming to church on a Sunday for Scripture. I was at Scripture on Wednesday, and we, we've been in a habit, actually, of handing out uh, invitations to Sunday morning kids' programs or to half past six on uh, Friday nights. And it's really interesting. We talk about death all the time in Scripture. When we don't have a trigger warning for it, you don't need a trigger warning for what's going to happen to everyone, right? But we just talk about it. And then we, we do talk about the hope that, that the, the gospel brings and God's answer to it. And you know what strikes me? Kids are always interested in this. They're always interested. They're more interested in this than David and Goliath. They're interested in what happens to the person, their, their grandma or their parent or who is dying or has died, they want to know what's happening next. But you know what's tragic? Often at the end when I hand out the invite, uh, they'll say to me, oh, I really want to come, but I've got netball. I really want to come, but I've got a party. I really want to come, but I've got tuition. It's, it's so sad. We, we do everything we can to distract ourselves from dealing with death, you know? We do everything we can to distract ourselves dealing with death. That's the vast majority of people. Although there's a growing trend, actually, of people who have seen death and they just don't know what to do with it, so they just kind of have immersed a hopelessness about life. This is a growing trend. 
if you read the newspaper now, most articles are doom and gloom articles. You don't know what to do with a world that's, that's irrevocably stained by death. So what we do is we just kind of almost embrace it in a form of nihilism. I was watching a film recently on Netflix which is all about the end of the world. And normally, in the past, these films were all about humanity triumphing. But the heroes in this story are a group of people who, in the final scene, all find themselves gathered around a table embracing death that's coming quietly, meekly, going into the night, so to speak. But you know what? And we think, okay, that's the way we're not going to be ruled by death. We just... We're not going to let it, we're not going to live up to false hopes and false dreams anymore. We've, got, we've done away with idealism. But I've got to say, both approaches actually are tragic. Both approaches. Whether you're someone who just blinds yourself to it and softens yourself to it or, or just has given in to it, both of you are ruled by death. Of course, the person who's given in to it is ruled by that. You can see that. But even the materialist is ruled by death. They're filling their life and their energy with activity and things because they're afraid of death. They're afraid of death. That's a tragedy. You're still ruled by death. But what's more tragic is, it's a lie. It's a lie. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And to just pretend that it doesn't matter, to pretend that it has no impact on your life, that's tragic. But the Bible says actually the even more tragic thing about that is that death is actually it itself is actually a symptom of an even bigger problem. The New Testament writers keep saying, they say death is a symptom of sin. Death comes from a broken relationship with God, a relationship which doesn't allow you to walk with God well. You know, in Genesis 3, when Adam breaks the law, right, the first sin, he eats the fruit he's not meant to with Eve. What happens? God is walking in the garden in the cool of night, cool of the day, He wants to walk with Adam. But Adam is hiding. He's hiding from God. You know, death, living in the world of death, makes it hard to live as one of the people God has chosen. Because at the heart of death is sin. And we might want to ignore death, but it means that when we come to that last day, and this, this mortal body has run its race, we still have to face up to the God of the universe. And the problem of death remains. Now, the question is, Enoch stands out. He stands out. He stands out because he doesn't die. This is remarkable. There's only one other character in the whole Bible for whom it said he doesn't die. It's Elijah, who also is taken up. It's, it's so, so bizarre. Why is it that Enoch is different to everyone else. What is it that differentiates Enoch from the world around? Well, the writer of the Hebrews actually is very helpful in this. The writer of the Hebrews in in chapter 11 does a whole list of characters from the Old Testament who we often refer to as heroes of faith. In, In other words, these are people in the story of the Old Testament who are worth following. There's something about the way they live that's worth following. And he includes in his list Enoch. There's only two verses on Enoch. The other, other characters are like Abraham or Moses, on which there are whole books dedicated to, right? Whole sections of books dedicated in the Old Testament. But Enoch, two verses, and yet he makes a list. And here's what he says about Enoch. He says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. 
He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The writer to the Hebrews is helping us to understand Genesis. And he says this, Enoch stands out from the rest of his generation and the world around him for this reason, that he is a man of faith. And what is faith? It is to believe that God exists. In other words, it's to live with a deep realisation that there is a God. And he is God. Over and apart you and, and the rest of creation. And secondly, to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He longs to give good gifts. Actually, Enoch is in a contrast to Adam and Eve. If you think about the nature of Adam and Eve's first sin, in part, it is to not believe that he, earnest, he seeks to re reward those who earnestly seek him. In fact, Adam and Eve's sin is to believe the lie of the snake, which is that God will surely not bless them. That what God has said will surely not come about. It is to mistrust God. It is to believe that God is not as good as he says he is. But Enoch does. Enoch believes that God is God and that God is good. And the product of this is that, as we see, miraculously, in the twinkling of an eye, Enoch is just not there anymore. Does it mean, is it possible that he went to a distant land and then just died like elephants do, <laughs> went to the graveyard? It's unlikely because the whole point of this chapter is that everyone died. They know where these people are dying. They know that each person has died up to this point. And the writer makes the point. He's there with them. He's living 300 years of faithful discipleship and then the next minute, he's just not there anymore. He's transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Now, our, our, our inclination as we read these passages in Scripture is to think, oh, that's, a, that's, that's almost magical. It must be kind of like a fairy tale. It couldn't really have happened. It's probably just... It's probably just made up, rhetorical flourish. You know, they wanted to say Enoch was really good, so he just didn't die. It's a fairy tale. It would be a fairy tale, except, of course, when Jesus Christ comes. And the whole point of the account of Jesus' life is this very thing that death is not the full stop that it has been in people's life. In fact, it is Jesus' life that testifies that what happens to Enoch is both possible and God's ultimate plan for each of his people. Although Jesus is different to Enoch, you notice? He's different. Enoch avoids death, just gets transformed. Jesus embraces death. See, Enoch is the beneficiary of God's grace. But Jesus is the one who pours out God's grace. He could have just done what Enoch did. But he goes through death. Because why? Because death has a problem. It's a symptom of something deeper. And so he goes through death, deep down, to deal with the core of the issue, which is our guilt, before God. To deal with the judgment that we have with God. And then having been dead for three days, as Pippi talked about in Spotlight, the overwhelming historical evidence is three days later he rose again. Not to escape death, but to conquer it. 
Not to say, death is too strong for me, so I will flee from it, but rather to say, I am too strong for death, so I will crush it. And so when Jesus comes, he tells us actually that what is true for Enoch can ultimately and ultimately and fundamentally be true for God's people too, by faith. Here's what the author Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter. And if you're doing our Bible readings for this week in the booklet, they are a meditation on this chapter. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through man. Paul says, Jesus not only crushes death, but by faith, Jesus opens the door so that each of us might no longer be treated like one in the line of Seth or the line of Adam, but in the line of Christ. See, when you put your faith in Christ, you get moved from Adam's family history to Jesus' family history. And Jesus' family history has a story not of a man who escapes death, but one who destroys death. Not of one who is unique in the world, but one who rules over the world. The great hope, you see, of the Christian life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and by faith you too will receive that, you will find the resources to live as God's people in this world. By faith, knowing that God is God and that God is good. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, for the extraordinary promise that we can have more than Enoch even. That our lives will not only be transformed, but death will never hold rule over us in Christ. Lord God, would you help us to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to see in it the answer for all of our deepest fears, the things that we most want to run away from, would you help us to see the good news that Christ is risen and grant us faith to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.